0: The that Good Tidings has gone in and, and have renovated over 200 different facilities for these kids to go and play, I just thought it was inspiring.
1: Welcome to the third season of the Good Tidings podcast, where we highlight and inspire a community of givers with your host, the founder of the Good Tidings Foundation, Larry Harper It is my pleasure to be sitting in the press box of Oracle Park during batting practice before a Giants-Padres game with a San Francisco Giants legend for this month's Good Tidings podcast. He is a treasured for his performance both on the field and for his wonderful storytelling in the broadcast booth. So welcome to the show, Mike Kruko. Well,
0: thank you, Larry. I mean, I I think I'm I'm a legend only because I have great partners and I take full advantage of Dwayne Kuyper and John Miller and Dave Fleming. Uh, they have a tendency to make me look good. So I'm a very lucky man, but thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. So now we grew up in the same town in San Gabriel, California, which is just a few miles East of Los Angeles. And for young kids growing up in SoCal in the sixties, I'm sure you were, as I was influenced heavily by this new baseball team that came to town called the Los Angeles Dodgers. And they brought their announcer with them from Brooklyn named Vin Scully how did listening to Vin as a kid influence you and your passion for this great game? Well, he taught me the game.
0: He explained it to me through stories. And he's a great storyteller. I mean, as great Rick Monday, who's still a broadcaster with the Dodgers and was a partner with Vin for many years, says, you know, the one thing about Vin Scully is that he had the amazing ability to be able to have whoever was at the plate hitting foul off 15 pitches so he could start and finish his great story. But we were the benefactors of all those stories. And through the stories, we learned the game of baseball. You know, it's funny, my goal when I got to the big leagues was to have Vin Scully say my name in the radio. That to me was confirmation that you were a big leaguer. So the very first year in 1977, I come in with the Cubs and I'm a starting pitcher and I'm pitching it. It was like bat night and there's like 50,000 people there. And this is back in the era when they had transistor radios and about half the crowd had transistor radios. So I trot out there at the bottom of the first inning with the Cubs. And I'm warming up, and I can hear the broadcast of Vince Scully, and he's talking about me. Mike Kruko had 17 no
1: decisions this year, more than any other pitcher in the major league. He comes in 5-6, and but four of those wins without a loss after the All-Star break. And once he got himself healthy, there's the strike to Vince Coleman. And it was
0: unbelievable. you know, And years later, I, I, when I became a broadcaster, we got to be really good friends. And I told him the story. He goes, Mike, I wish I could tell you that you're the first guy that ever told me that. <laughs> so I think for all of us that played in California, especially Southern California, that was we all had the same goal. And I got to live that dream. And it was wonderful. But he did indeed yeah. make me fall in love with baseball.
1: Yeah. And I, I, you mentioned about playing there. And then Next level is, did it even occur to you or blow your mind that you would actually sit in the broadcast booth next to him for 25 plus years broadcasting baseball for the rival, which happened to be his favorite team growing up? Yeah, he was raised in New York
0: about three blocks away from the polo grounds. And I'll tell you a Scully story that he would tell. He loved Mel Ott, Mel Ott, the home run hitting giant right fielder. And he loved him because Vin Scully was left-handed. So they went to a Catholic school about three blocks away from uh, the polo ground, and when the game and they had a day game, and, and class would get out, school would get out. He and all of his buddies they would go over to the one gate where one of the parishioners was a guard there, and he let all the kids in. So they'd run around to the right field line. And it was only about two hundred fifty feet from home plate. The right field line. The configuration of the polo ground was you could get really close to the players, and they would go over there and they would watch Melot and and Vince Kelly said that if you look close you could see that Melod had a nervous habit with his left foot. He would scratch at the ground, and he would dig a little divot there. And if you look close enough, you could see the nine divots that he dug defending against that team he was playing that day. And years later, he would say, when he became the manager of the Giants, back then they didn't wear rubber shoes they wore spikes the managers did so they dressed up and had the spikes on he had the same nervous habit in the dugout and two or three times a year they'd have to replace the wooden plank that he scratched a big hole in so these were the kind of stories that he would tell you so when we became broadcasters Dwayne and john and dave and i we would all turn into 12 year old kids and go over to the booth and listen to him tell this tell us these stories And we never missed it. I mean, we, and he knew it. I mean, he knew that he was going to have an audience and and we just couldn't wait, whether he was here or whether we were in Los Angeles. I mean, that was something that we, we just never
1: missed. Cherished every moment, I'm sure. So you truly exude positivity and passion and love for the game and a way to capture people through your storytelling. Has that always been your way, even as a child and a player, the way we listened to you on a broadcast, so pumped up about everything, were you always that way?
0: Yeah, I was pretty much, uh, you know, I I look back at the journey that I've had in this life and it's been pretty remarkable the the amount of experiences that we've had, amount of people that I've been so fortunate along the way to meet. And just, it's been just a great journey because there's so many wonderful things we've been able to experience all through this game of baseball. The people that we've met, the people that we've met in the stands, and we've grown to have a strong relationship with the teammates, the guys you played against. Now, now, when you get out, you get to the big leagues. You play against the same guys for however long your career is going to be. There's no other level that you're going to go up from here, and you get to know these guys. And when you retire, you all kind of fall into the same tent. And when you see each other at a function or a gala or or a golf tournament. They're in the same fraternity, and these guys that you didn't even like, you found out that, hey, I like these guys. And we're just standing around telling stories. So, I mean, the whole journey's been amazing, and and I've been pretty positive my whole life because of the game of baseball. It's amazing how it's influenced me in every facet of my life.
1: Yeah, wonderful. You know, very few players have the honor of winning the Willie Mack Award, which is named in honor of Willie McCovey and awarded to the team's most inspirational player, but you won it twice. That has to make you feel pretty great.
0: Well, it absolutely did because I knew of his legend. I mean, I I was raised in The only games we saw on TV when I was in Los Angeles were the Dodgers and the Giants. So you got to know both teams. But McCovey had such a cool home run trot that even a kid in living in Southern California, when we were playing home run derby, when we did the home run trot, we did Willie McCovey's home run trot. So in 1977, I got a chance to pitch against him. It was in Candlestick Park, and he comes up with the bases loaded, two outs. And he hit a a ball down the right field line, and it was a home run. I mean, it was right down the line, but it was fair by a bunch, 10 feet or whatever. Well, Bruce Fremming, who was the first-base umpire, he turned around to follow the ball, and as he did, he stumbled. I saw all this. So he didn't see, well, the ball was hit so far up into the upper deck that it wrapped around the foul pole, and it wound up being on the foul side of it when it finally landed in the seats. And Bruce Fremming looked up, and he went, foul ball. Well, you know McCovey. I mean, he had hit 18 lifetime grand slams, right? So I get traded to the Giants in 1982. And the, anyway, the next pitch he goes up, throw ball in the dirt, curve ball, he swings, miss, strike three, inning over. <laughs> but fast forward now, five years later, I'm I'm being introduced as part of the of the 1983 Giants team, and McCovey was there at the presser when when uh, they were introducing me in December of '82 that I was the new Giant, and he walked up to me and he said, you know. You're number nineteen. Oh my goodness! He knew it. I knew it. But it was one that he never got credit for. So that's what he called me the rest of the time that I was here at Giant. He'd say, "Hey, nineteen, how you doing today?" You know, which I love. So you know, having grown up in his lore and having had the privilege to play against him, and then to have my own very story like that, very personal story like that, and then to have him next to our booth for years where Kipe and I would be doing our, our playbook before the game. And if something was bothering us, we just go next door and there's McCovey and we would sit there and we'd have a dialogue and, you know, it just felt like you were good friends. So that, that award meant a a whole bunch to me because of how much I, I love
1: the guy. And it's one of the things I'm most proud of. Yeah. Great story. I also know you're a very accomplished musician. Now, is that something that paralleled your baseball career or did that come later in your life?
0: No, I started when I was 10. I mean, uh, it was the, the folk era was alive and well in the early 60s. There was a show on TV called Hootenanny where Jack Linkletter used to go around to college campuses and they and they would have this weekly show where they would have all these touring folk singers and whatnot and they all played the guitar and the banjo and I mean, I just loved it. So we started up and I had some kids in the block who did and we had a little band and it was fun and uh, but I played my whole life and it, you know, once you learn strings like guitar, I mean, you can play any other string instrument, banjo, ukulele, mandolin. So, and then you kind of morph into a fiddle and a cello and you can make music. You know, I'm not going to be at Carnegie Hall anytime soon, but I can make music and my kids all do that. We all like to sing and whatnot, but it's been a big part of my life. And it's been, I mean, all those years on the road, I always had something with me, some kind of musical instrument. So it really kind of saved me all those lonely nights on the
1: road. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I'd say, like you said, it's certainly trickled down to your kids who are very artistic. Our medical challenges have been documented and, and talked about enough, but it was about a year ago that our mutual friend, Dave Fleming, connected us for what has been really a life changing situation for me. And and both of us are beneficiaries of service dogs from this wonderful organization in Napa called Canine Guardians. Tell us about that relationship and about that organization.
0: Well, we had had dogs our whole life, and then uh, we had a, a female golden Bella who passed, and you know we felt that we would never have a dog simply because a puppy running around. I mean, it's dangerous for me. I mean, I, I fall, and if you try to sidestep a puppy, you know, you could fall, and so it just wasn't realistic. I did a an appearance up in Marin, and a woman said to me, "You know, you might be a candidate for this." So I, well, yeah, but. I, the more I got into it, the more I realized that there were so many more people that were deserving of this that I kind of withdrew my application. And and then about six months later, I get a phone call and said, we, we may have an animal for you. This is an animal that's three years old, and I think this guy is, is suited for you. And I was reluctant because I didn't want to take somebody else's dog. He says, no, no, this is this guy's perfect for you. So we met the Patriot four years ago. You know, the one thing with, with both you and I, I mean, we have anxiety because of how we live our lives. And by the end of the day, it can overwhelm you. Since we got Patriot into our lives, I mean, he takes that away from me. And uh, when we're out at the ballpark or if we're out in a restaurant or if we, uh, he creates space. You know, people recognize me, you know, and they want to come and talk Giants baseball, which I love. But if they get too close, it kind of intimidates me a little bit because I I don't want to be pushed or pulled or because I would go down. But with the dog there, I mean, there's space. So he's been really a godsend for me. And I just say a prayer of thanks every day for him. I mean, he's he's taking care of me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's amazing. You know, I think most people love a dog, but what a dog can do for you in so many ways. And I've had Dana now for nine months and the relationship builds and what they do for you. It's uh, unbelievable. And for me, it's also the space thing and she can run a circle and keep, keep some distance from me so I can focus a little better. But it's... It's really remarkable, and what Rochelle's done up there with this small organization, The Lives She Touches, is really great. Yeah, it's
0: magical what they do, and you really, until you see what these dogs do to the people who get these dogs, that's the true miracle. People who are frantic, and uh, they've internalized, and, and they've withdrawn, and they're in pain, obviously, mental and physical pain, and then you see them three months later after having spent some time with their animals, and it's a different person. And it just completely, it changes them. And it makes their life, it enriches their life. Because most of these dogs, when they go to somebody, I mean, they,
1: these people are in trouble. They need help. And these dogs help them. They're gifts. Yeah, for sure. You know, over your career, you've supported so many charities. Did your passion for helping come from some sort of influence when you were younger? Or was it more from how grateful you were from your success on the baseball field and you felt maybe you should get back?
0: We are incredibly lucky, and it's a really a great way to f- to find a charity that you believe in and support and help in any way that you can. Because charities are all about fundraising, and they do so much good. Now, my mother was a nurse, my dad was a cop. You know, their whole lives they help people. So, you know, it was something that they did. They worked with uh, various charities, and I witnessed it even as a young boy. So it just seemed like such an obvious thing when we were, were so blessed to be a big leaguer to be in the big leagues. And to be able to, uh, in some small way, have a chance to give back, I mean, it's, it's what we all do. And, and you know, it doesn't get talked about enough, but all these guys, it's rare that you find somebody that isn't associated with a charity once they get to the big leagues. And they do wonderful work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, the teams do a wonderful job, and certainly here in San Francisco. And certainly here at Good Tidings, we are grateful for your support. You've supported us for almost all of our 28 years. Most recently, you made a generous contribution to our GT Ventures program, which was in response a couple of years ago to the Black Lives Matter movement, where we offer $10,000 startup grants for young Black individuals starting a charity. And your donation was matched by the Giants. And so tell us why you were so moved to help Good Tidings, and in particular, this project, which helping young Black people get more involved in community.
0: Well, with... Junior Giants program, when we saw this thing in its infant stages, the whole thing behind Junior Giants program was to go into socioeconomically depressed areas and on an open avenues with which these kids could play baseball. Because let's face it, baseball is expensive. Bats are over $100. Mitts are over $100. I mean, I mean this is financially a, a difficult sport for people who don't have money to play cleats, All the equipment, getting into a league and paying a league. And then all of a sudden the Giants get involved and they started with 500 kids. And now they have almost 30,000 kids every year who are given an opportunity to not only learn the game of baseball, but learn about teamwork and learn about what makes a team win. And experience the thrill of getting a base hit, and making a play, and you know you have kids who are, are handicapped that are part of the team. They're coaches, they're scorekeepers, they're broadcasters. You know they include everybody, and it's really a, a remarkable thing. When I found out about Good Tidings and the opportunities that they create for kids who are in the same group that they need a hand, they need a hand to get started, and the fact that Good Tidings has gone in and, and have renovated over 200 different facilities for these kids to go and play. I just thought it was inspiring. And for opportunities to have opportunity in sport or business for minorities, it just seemed like it was such an obvious and it was such a warm thing. Plus Dave Fleming is like the greatest salesman (laughs) on the planet, but he would come back and, you know, and Dave, he doesn't show a lot of emotion about a lot of things, but he he was completely in love with what the charity did. And he saw firsthand as to how it helped people and how many people it helped. So with Dave's enthusiasm for it, just kind of got us all involved. We wanted to be part of it.
1: Yeah, that's great. I know you now make your off-season home in Reno, Nevada. Tell us about your involvement with helping out in the Northern Nevada Children's Cancer Foundation up there.
0: Well, again, we you know
1: got involved with
0: childhood cancer fundraising through the efforts of Buster and Kristen Posey. Uh, they have a function every September here that they would ask Kaip and I to host. It's a dinner, and that dinner was very powerful. They would raise over a million dollars for the Benioff Children's Hospital and cancer research. It's just uh, remarkable what the Posey family had done. So we met people there that had lost a three-year-old grandson to leukemia, and they were involved with fundraising with the Northern Nevada Children's Cancer Foundation. And what they do, I mean, it's kind of a grassroots foundation. They now are helping, I think the total this year is 167 different families. And what they do, is you have a single mother with two children, one's a three-year-old with leukemia. They'll pay for the treatment. They'll drive her and the child to the treatment. They'll babysit the other one at home while they're getting their treatment. In the meantime, they'll stock the refrigerator. They'll disinfect the house. These kids become reclusive because they really can't get out in public because they don't have the ability to they're compromised in their ability to withstand disease. It's, so they're, they have to be reclusive. They'll go into a theater and they'll rent the whole theater out. And that family and that child will be able to go watch a movie. So they do a bunch of things like this. And it's really been wonderful. Plus we moved from San Luis Obispo. We'd been there for 25 years and knew everybody. We moved to Reno. We knew nobody and getting involved in this, in, in CCF, we got to meet incredible people. And, uh, so it's, it's just been, I kind of feel bad because we like to try to help people, but I just feel like I'm getting all the benefit from the association up there. It's just been great. So, in fact, we're going to have another function in June at the uh, Reno Aces, uh, the AAA affiliate with the Diamondbacks. They have a park in Reno, and it's really a good one. I forget the exact date, but we're going to have a fundraiser for children's cancer, and uh, we encourage everybody to come on up. They're going to be a home run derby. I'll be there.
1: We'll be telling stories and raising money for the, for the kids. Well, and we're going to be there too, and we'll put in the show notes how people can get engaged and help with that. Thanks, Larry. You know, one other item, I know you're also a supporter of the San Francisco Smeon Contemporary Ballet. Tell us about that relationship.
0: Well, I have five children, four boys and a girl, my youngest son, you know, my oldest three boys all dutifully played baseball, all in college. And so it came my youngest son's turn to come through and put on the glove, and he did. But after the game was over, he'd go home and he would go into his room and he would dance to the music videos. And he loved it. The and then every night we'd have a, a show. This is when he was seven years old, right? Uh, and sure. we'd all get in and we had like a sunken one step into the formal living room. We'd all turn the chairs around and he'd get in. The, so it almost looked like a stage. It was a hardwood floor and he'd get up there and he'd do his shows and whatnot. So it was his passion. And then uh, so we got him trained. We got into dance school and, and it really was such an incredible education for Jennifer, my wife and I, to see the world through his eyes, because I had no idea it even existed. And he was really good. Got a scholarship to the University of Arizona, which is a tremendous fine arts program in the field of dance, and then he became a professional dancer, and he made his Broadway debut this year with the Phantom of the Opera. The big break for him when he left the University of Arizona was to be able to dance with the Smeon Ballet here in San Francisco. Celia Fusil, who runs the program over there, is just a remarkable woman. And the and Ballet has just been around forever. And it's just, it's one really great things of San Francisco that I really did not know a whole lot about. And my son got me involved because of his involvement. So I, it's one of those things that we're very proud of, you know, being associated. And then Again, watching him where he goes. He's been on international tours with an uh, American of Paris. We went to Paris to go see him in an American of Paris. I mean, it's just what a – I mean, I, I didn't even know this road was there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How cool is all that? And, so, and I encourage people to look up and Google uh, a show that you produced called Baseball Ballet that I watched. It's just really spectacular. So congrats on that. Thank you. Well, I'm sure everyone listening is not shocked to hear all the good things you are doing. So thank you for how you lived your life and the influence and help you've given so many. I guess for two guys who grew up in San Gabriel, California, we turned out okay. Who'd have thunk?
0: <laughs> Larry, thanks for having me, man. It's my pleasure.
1: All right. You're the best. have just enjoyed an episode of the Good Tidings podcast, highlighting the goodness in people. To learn more about and to support the Good Tidings Foundation, log on to goodtidings.org. This monthly program is brought to you by the generosity of responseresponsibility.org. Don't miss out on the Good Tidings podcast by reviewing and subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.